0: Hi, everyone. As part of our holiday giving drive, we're releasing one podcast episode every week. This week, we're taking a break from the Young in the World series to share a seminar from our archives. And you'll hear more about that in a little bit. If you would like to support this podcast, please contribute to our holiday giving drive by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to youngchicago.org give. Thanks. young anthology podcast from the cg young institute of chicago the myth of shadow and the shadow of myth with nathan schwartz salant phd mythology can help us to understand and integrate the shadow but this endeavor can also be undermined by the use of mythology in particular the limiting madness of the shadow can be denied and with this denial one can lose a sense of soul and embodied life short salon examines the nature of madness and evil and the means of coming to terms with these powerful elements of the shadow the keynote lecture of the conference gold in dark places shadow work in the struggle for selfhood which includes eight lectures this one the myth of shadow and the shadow of myth the Typological Counterculture, Introverted Feeling and Its Allies, with John Giannini. The Vampire Archetype and Vampiric Relationships, with Julie McAfee. World Oppression and the Power of Transformation, with John Van Ienwick The Wounding Shadow of the Wounded Healer, Narcissism and Codependency in the Helping Professions, with Jean Shinoda Bolin. Shadows on the Rock, Women, Violence, and the Church, with Joan Chamberlain Engelsman. Depth Psychology and Politics, Reflections on the Mythopoetic Men's Movement with Andrew Samuels, and Shadow Issues in the Daughter's Father Complex with Julia Jewett. If any of those sound interesting to you, you can purchase them individually in our store or also uh, purchase the entire conference um, at a discount. So just click the link in the show notes if you're interested in that. And we also have other uh, seminars with Nathan Schwartz-Salant, and there's also another podcast episode of his if you want to go back and look at our archives, you can do that too. You can support this free podcast by making a donation, becoming a member of the Institute, or making a purchase in our online store. Your support enables us to provide free and low-cost educational resources to all. So now here's the seminar.
1: Introducing Nathan Schwartz Zalant offers me a difficult challenge if I have any hope of originality in my remarks. Whenever Nathan is mentioned, one always hears adjectives like innovative, creative, imaginative, and original. And they're all correct. So finding some way of describing him and his contributions to the field without feeling like a parrot and still doing him justice is a real test. As I consider what I've already said, I realize that the words challenge and test present themselves as yet another way to describe Nathan's effect on his colleagues and the field of depth psychology in general. He has perhaps more than any contemporary Jungian laid out a challenge to fully and completely surrender to the interactive process that defines the work of analysis. He strives to offer himself completely to those who enter his consulting room and demands nothing more than he is willing to endure himself. This challenges us all to make the same level of commitment, not in some brash, grandiose way, but quietly and seriously and with resolve. Tonight, Nathan brings us another challenge, to carefully consider the dangers of complacency that are implicit in following a method at the expense of really entering the encounter with another person. He is the right person to begin in this keynote presentation to lead us into the dark places, because he has respect for their dangers and a willingness to persevere as these mysteries defy our rush to understand. Would you please give a warm welcome to Nathan Schwartz Salam.
2: Thank you, Peter. All those adjectives have a big shadow. A lot of people here tonight, I understand you gave numbers over 600. That means actually 1,200 of you if you count your shadows. That's one of Jung's main, main contributions to think of the shadow as an actual personality within you. It's not an easy job to talk about evil. Not an easy job to talk about the shadow. When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, um, there was a radio program I used to love, which I'm sure many of you remember. You know that old refrain, you know, what evil lurks in the hearts of men, the shadow knows. Um, That's how the refrain went through the program. And The shadow knows a lot. And um, it's a um, monumental task to try to talk about shadow because there's little that cuts at the core of our existence more than shadow. So I'll try to do it. Okay? A friend of mine, an analyst with a wide-ranging interest in cultural issues, recently um, sent me a letter after attending a lecture I gave on mad parts of sane people in analysis. He asked how I can see and deal with such dark aspects of people and especially the soul destructive acts that appear to originate and one might say live in the territory of madness without becoming overwhelmed by the evil and madness in the world at large. How do you not despair about our world? He wondered. How do you go on? Now as an analyst working hour by hour in my cave-like office, it's easy to not ask such questions. It's possible to adopt a kind of optimism based upon the fact that as far as psyche is concerned, its imagery would insist that there is gold indeed in very dark places. But one should know that there's a wide gap between imagery and act, between psychic potential and embodied ethical reality. A 43-year-old man recently dreamed what would appear to be a dream that's tailor-made for this conference. In the dream, he entered a dark cave, and inside there were three men, thieves, who had stolen gold. Gold, indeed, in dark places. The dreamer was frightened, but the leader of the robbers soon turned out to be a TV actor, a song and dance man that the dreamer knew from a play he had seen. This leader tells the dreamer, go on, climb up out of here. Climb out of the cave. And with the now diminished sense of fear, he climbs up. The other robbers shoot at him wildly, but he's not hurt. And he gets out of the cave. Needless to say, he did not retrieve the gold. He entered a dark place, the cave-like inner world of his mother complex, met up with his dark instinctual side that he has never been able to own in any way in his life, and his defenses of denial immediately took over. The drama diminished. The possibility of recovery of a self was lost. He climbs up towards his head, his lifelong refuge from his inner drives that have terrified him since infancy. How will this man ever retrieve his inner gold? Symbolic of a stable self-structure He had years and years of analysis with numerous analysts who have interpreted his shadow to him odd nauseam. No integration occurred. Why will he do better with me? The dream shows a potential, but hardly a favorable lysis. Why should I be optimistic about this man's possibilities? I'm not. But I'm also not pessimistic, for he comes to analysis. He is somehow committed to his soul. I believe his only hope lies in meeting up with his inner madness, with an inner world of fusion with the great mother that is so overwhelming that it totally undermines separation and threatens madness as a catastrophic result of any individuation effort. I'll talk to you a lot more about that but where is my shadow here? Do I carry on with some optimism amidst a process that often seems chronically circular and repetitive because I'm interested in madness? In this man's case, I believe I have seen his dream imagery change and I have seen him change in important ways in terms of his profession and family life. But he comes to face his shadow and its instinctual life. As he does that, I'd be a fool to be optimistic. Certainly, this dream mitigates against such an attitude, yet there is gold there. What would be needed to help him retrieve it? What has helped him in our work so far together? Here I have an answer I believe in. He has progressed only through work within the transference and counter-transference field. For example, when he could see that in certain ways he and I were quite the same, rather than me taking a position of being above him in consciousness and growth, his actual behavior in life changed. He had always constellated a kind of negative father figure in the men whom he had worked with. If I was not to reenact such a power position, which in fact I often found myself tending to do if not doing, I would have to feel how much my psyche was just like this man's. Unless I do this, I'll educate him about his shadow, but I'll never help him know The suffering of his own soul as a result of his own shadow. I'll feed his shadow to his ego. I will not help him know about the suffering of his own soul. That's what Christ does when he says turn the other cheek. That helps you know the suffering. That's the wisdom of that for me. Now I do not cherish being brought a dream such as this and having to reckon with how I do not take symbolic gold out of my own cave of inner darkness and place of retreat. I do not like to deal with ways that I lie to myself about the reality of my own inner shadow, about the robber within me who steals the great value of the self. For that's how the shadow often works, stealing away one's highest values, and often doing so by watering them down so that we fail in courage, fail in dealing with what in our deepest knowledge about ourselves we know we must deal with. I also do not cherish having to face my own splitting defenses, My own tendencies to move into my head with him and then see how the pattern he is in is so plainly archetypal. A classic image of the need to fight the dragon. It's so easy to tell him such things and to become a mentor, urging him on, feeling a kinship with him because he is a man, but not feeling my own unresolved deep fusion issues and associated terrors. And knowing that a secret madness lurks here. This is not a gross kind of madness, not a florid, delusional madness in which you look at somebody and think they are about to rape your daughter. This is not a total reality distortion. The kind of madness I'm talking about is a secret kind of system that subtly distorts reality. For example, a man the other day came across the following inner belief system lived with for 40 years and never knew it. No one, he said, will connect to me in a way that respects my individuality. Anyone I am close to will always lie and distort what they see in me. You can imagine if you're living life with such a belief system, it's going to distort every relationship you have, as it did with this man, and he never knew it. Such beliefs lie hidden within the unconscious, usually unknown to the ego, yet they work to distort and alienate all relationships. It is a shock to discover that one's life has been run by such distortions. A shock. Every person here has such issues. Everyone, all of you. We all have a private madness, but the question is, how much does this madness have us? Jung wrote about such things in his alchemical works. And I'll later refer to such writings which demonstrate the extremely deep-seated nature of a collective shadow that we all partake of. Now what if I do tell this man about the pattern he's in? Suppose I interpret it in the following way. For example, I hear the dream and I also register my own splitting tendencies to become intellectual. In other words, I experience ways in which I'm tending to become the negative father, an aspect of the father so clearly absent in the dream. Having worked in this way with what can be called projective identification, I could interpret his dream as a statement about how he feels he is not being helped enough by the analysis perhaps because he experiences me still as a critical or absent father I may also note ways in which this dream is a correct reflection upon our work thus limiting any guilt that such an interpretation might engender but what would be involved in his getting the help he needs what really will help him is it a matter of his recognizing his negative projections onto me and so to speak integrating it and thus being able to eventually interject me in a positive way? I don't think so. Such thoughts bring to mind a Kabbalistic myth about knowledge and evil, in which the origin of evil lies in Adam's eating from the tree of knowledge. It is said when Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which is on the side of the devil, and separated it through his awareness and, or his contemplation, separated it through his awareness or his contemplation from the tree of life, the evil urge dominated him in his eating and in his soul. It is thus the act of splitting the tree of knowledge from the tree of life, which is the cause of evil. For then the tree of life loses its strength to contain the evil potential in the tree of knowledge. Originally, both trees were gross from the same root. They were one. Evil exists in this way of thinking as a result of destroying this unity. And you note it's remarkable that these wonderful words, Adam's awareness and contemplation, are seen as far from virtues, but they're reckoned as part of the creation of evil. Now when I interpret, I try not to blunder by becoming a source of knowledge about archetypal patterns, thus splitting life and knowledge. For it seems to me, unless I live within the life between us, and this means the mystery of that life which is so very different from the open book, this man would appear to be from this and similar dreams, then any knowledge I act on will itself be evil, itself destructive, if I do not live within the field of life between us. It is only if he and I are like brothers within a field of life that we both partake of and within which we are willing to discover not only what we know, but what we do not know, that our endeavor might have some success." It's within a field like this that one has to be alert to the fact not what you, of not what you can empathize with with another person, but to acutely look for where you cannot. To look for experiences in the other person that you do not know. To the uniqueness in the person separate from anything you can empathize with, along with empathy. Now... <clears throat> If I can do that, perhaps our endeavor might have some success. Surely it will not if I commit the other sin that tempted Adam, eating of the fruit of the tree of life. That is to say, if I fail to die, if I fail to die within our interaction, if I remain untouched in an essential way, and especially if I fail to see how my own madness is constellated by his or his by mine and how this field cannot ever be truly sorted out. Yet I also have known how such an effort can bear fruit that is not swallowed, can bear a self that the ego does not own. Strangely, I will have to die a bit. My omniscience, my omnipotence, and eternal residues of narcissism killed in order to help this man. In all of this, such reflections themselves may be a way of maintaining an optimism. Can they not also be a way of seeing evil, his or my own? Creativity can be a great escape. How am I to see ways in which I can be the fake robber, the actor, not really real? If he, like any patient, says, you just do this for the money, you're not real to me, the patient is always correct in some way. Is the patient not correct in ways that are far deeper than some appeal to reality or to the professional contract might explain? To call analysis the impossible profession is not an idle metaphor. Yet it is by accepting the impossibility of knowing while tenaciously working to understand and being open to not knowing that a mystery can unfold. A self can be born, and gold can indeed be found in dark places. But it is usually the darkness within the therapist that must lead the way. As an analyst, or at least my sense of what this means, if I speak about evil, I have to speak of its paradoxes and humiliations within the analytic hour. The devil is he who lies, the bringer of the lie, the one who acts in an inauthentic way while playing at being authentic. The devil in all of us hides the lie of inauthenticity within a narcissistic cover. Hence, the devil is often a dandy. To uncover the lie, the analyst often often has to go first. His lie, not the patient's, must first be unveiled. My friend's concern about the evil in the world can, I recognize, lead to taking refuge in all kinds of inspired and ancient doctrine. For example, an alchemical notion <coughs> when the central goal called the lapis is reached, it multiplies in the sense of greatly affecting many people. This is the mystery of the multiplication of loaves and fishes that Christ performs. But such a therapeutic optimism is not pure fantasy. For I know how the birth of an inner self, known in conjunction with a larger transcendent self, has a remarkable capability of affecting many people, of indeed multiplying. And I have seen how lives decimated by the evil of incestuous abuse of either a physical or psychic nature can find renewal from inner sources. I have participated in the torment and struggle this requires. I have seen how a self can emerge within such devastation and bring an inner sense of order and meaning where none had ever been consciously known before. And I also know that it is a very poor therapeutic attitude to be optimistic. I know that such instances of change cannot be counted on Instead, I know I must live on an edge of not knowing, not knowing whether some renewal will occur or whether it will not occur. Now, when I read about Wall Street abuses of power or about lies and deceptions in government, I find that I, like many people, tend toward idealization and denial, toward some belief that there is more to it than I know, or even perhaps there's a larger good behind such actions. Inwardly and secretly, I may tend to identify with the power and success of such people. I have to work against such childish naivete. We all do. I must register such behavior under the lens of what I really know about people and myself. I mean people who are not raving lunatics, but who live and work like most everyone does. These people appear to be sane, but actually have an inner area of madness that subtly or not so subtly distorts reality. When the truth about the lives of such people finally appears in public, in the flood of books that sell very well, for evil and madness is a very intriguing subject, it becomes only too clear that people who acted in ways, in retrospect, even they that even they themselves will often see as mad and depraved, were at the time not in control of themselves while believing they were. This lack of control was not at all felt by them, That's the nature of our mad parts. We do not know we are out of control. They were riding a wave of power and success, but it later turns on that a secret kind of madness was running the show. Instead of an ego making choices, they were driven by a compulsion that had had its own logic and intelligence. In religions of the world where evil has has an autonomous dualism, the power of evil is also a creator, such as Zoroastrianism. But these people were out of control, but once again, the treacherous aspect of madness is that one believes one is not mad. That perhaps is the difference between a mad person and one who is sane. The sane person knows he or she has areas of madness which can take over and can effectively destroy any semblance of reality functioning. While appearing to be rational and even inspired, a sane person knows madness lurks nearby. An insane person or someone possessed by his or her inner madness leaves himself or herself to be perfectly sane. It's under the pressure of such realms that the worst kinds of abuse occur, that soul murder itself can be engaged in while the person, a seemingly upstanding member of society, can otherwise go about what appears to be socially useful tasks. Usually it is only after the damage is done and the person is forced to see what has happened that his or her madness becomes evident. Several years ago, one of the investment bankers in a Wall Street scandal once went into a very expensive restaurant. And when asked for his order, he said, I'll have all the entrees. The waiter thought he didn't hear correctly. The man repeated himself. A special table was set up, and all the entrees on the menu was brought to him. He tasted them all, and he picked one out, and he had the rest sent back. If someone who wasn't a multimillionaire did this, one would immediately think he was quite mad and surely call for help of some kind, but not here. This man was powerful, and his actions were seen as merely idiosyncratic or clever. But when his terrible abuses of power finally came to light, actions such as these, and his son's statements to others years earlier that his father was not merely demanding in business, as others thought, but that his father was quite mad, are now seen in another light. One sees a dangerous megalomania, a person possessed by a corruptive power that eventually destroyed many careers and perhaps lives as well. While the alchemical lapis may have a quality of multiplying, while the lapis, that great goal of self, may have a quality of multiplying, I'm afraid the numinosum of evil does as well. So to my friend's question I have an answer, but not one that is totally satisfying. I believe, I suppose, that evil has not yet won out perhaps not yet, and I believe that we are in a battle with darkness and perhaps a battle that is more dangerous now than ever before in the history of humanity. That may be why we witness nowadays a revelation of the dark aspects of so many people, those that have done terrible damage and those that have also brought considerable consciousness and beauty as well. Even Time Magazine, you know, when Time gets it, it's finally happened. Even Time Magazine had a recent cover story, you know, entitled Evil. Does it exist or do bad things just happen? It is remarkable how the shadow side of so many famous people has risen up before our eyes. The number of names still causes a shudder. Jung himself, but Freud too and many leading names of psychoanalysis exposed in Jeffrey Masson's books can be listed among those whose shadow side has either been exposed or highlighted in some way. Lately, we have learned of Masood Khan's madness and his anti-Semitism. Joseph Campbell dies and his shadow is immediately a media topic. And a long list of other names can be drawn up, names of people whose darkness terribly afflicted those very close to them while they appeared to be pinnacles of light. No longer do we have to focus upon the seemingly total darkness, and madness of a Hitler, a Stalin, a Jim Jones, or a Saddam Hussein. Now, as a result of mass media reports, one thinks easily of the shadow sides of creative people, those who have entertained us. Bing Crosby, Joan Crawford, Picasso, Heidegger, Tillich, Battleheim, Chaplin, Werner Earhart, and a number of Indian and Tibetan gurus whose crazy wizard wisdom is actually a euphemism for psychotic behavior and abusive sexual acts many more names could be added. It would appear that becoming successful is a sure way to find one shadow side hung out in public. <laughs> and this is a remarkable phenomenon. And I think a testimony to the fact that shadow awareness is becoming an absolute necessity for our very survival. Perhaps the humble work of an analyst dealing day by day with his or her own shadow while dealing with the same material in a patient in some ways a contribution to this effort. And to this end, let's look to C.J. Jung's approach to a person's dark and often destructive side, to the shadow. In Jung's work, we find some of the most important and, I think, problematic approaches to evil that we have in modern times. Why does evil exist? Why? Why? This question, which can appear appear so dry and philosophical, is actually deeply alive for everyone as it certainly was for C.J. Jung. Not only has every historical epoch been concerned with evil, but the the eternal child in all of us asks, why does evil exist? Or why couldn't God make a world without evil? For it it is the child in life and then the child within who especially feels the power and devastation of evil. For example, the evil of parental projections that split the child from his or her core self and especially the evil of envy that sears and destroys a child's link with his or herself. And this is to say nothing of the evil of the catastrophic acts of physical and sexual abuse. Catastrophic. If the reality of evil is not a burning issue for a person, it is only because he or she is cut off from an inner darkness and from the experiences of abuse his or her soul has known. To lose touch with evil one's own and that of others, is to lose touch with the judgment carried out deeply within the soul. In the Egyptian ritual of the weighing of the heart at death, the heart was seen to tend either toward the side of Seth, the devil, or the side of Osiris, the soul and the giver of life. There's a deep morality in the human soul that does this weighing. Why evil? Why evil? There have been many answers, and in this paper I'm especially concerned with Jung's and its clinical relevance. But others before him, notably the Platonists, the Gnostics, and the Kabbalists, have given their answers. For example, a Kabbalistic answer would say that it it is absurd to think of a perfect creation without evil, for God cannot exactly produce himself. The very act of creation involves, at least in one strand of this thinking, God's voluntary contraction with the result that imperfection and evil arises. God's voluntary contraction. How do such philosophical thoughts come into existence? Where do they come from? Are they projections of internal psychic life? There's an important psychoanalytic way of thinking, due to Marian Milner, about the creative process that one could use to reflect the Kabbalistic idea. She does not do this. One could, though. The human creative act, it's suggested, by its very nature, passes through a phase of omnipotence and felt bigness into a smaller remnant of that once glorious state. Creative process is often blocked by the ego's inability to accept the smallness of one's creation. In turn, this process is intimately linked with anality, with the largeness of one's inner feelings and the smallness of the fecal product that ensues. Now, in this particular conception of the Lurianic Kabbalah that I talked about, one might wonder if that Kabbalah is, in fact, based upon human experiences of creativity and affects linked to anality. In other words, there could be a personal core in this conception of evil. But this leaves out a far deeper understanding of creation. A perennial question, a perennial question. Does the evil in the world stem only from human sources, or does it stem from a transpersonal realm that cannot be reduced to negative personal experiences? For example, to abuse, or to the deprivation of privation of security and love. Deprivation or privation. Now this is a very, very difficult issue, because all theories of evil that consider it to be a transpersonal process, such as part of the creation of the world, or a result of the sin of a primordial ancestor, or a result of splitting of different qualities in the Godhead, or as an absence of good found in the Probatio Boni view of evil, can, if you want, can be seen as projections from personal psychology. As I have mentioned, the link between anality and creativity could be used to reduce the Lurianic idea of God's contraction to a personal experience. Evil is stemming from a primordial ancestor as an Adam's sin of paradise could certainly be seen as a fanciful image of the fact that projective identification can carry devastating acts of soul abuse from generation to generation, hence a primordial ancestor. The source of evil as the splitting of qualities in the Godhead could certainly be seen in Mel- Melanie Klein's belief that human development must move through the so-called paranoid schizoid and into the depressive position, where concern for another person is said to come into existence. The evil as an absence of good or a privatio boni, a privation of good, certainly is seen in Winnicott's differentiation between deprivation concerning something one has already had and lost as against privation, the devastating affects of privation, which refer to what one has never had but without which one cannot thrive. And if someone wanted to think of a transpersonal force of evil in terms of the huge affects signified by the Old Testament God, by the trickster archetype, or by what gripped Nazi Germany, or by the horrible abuses of torture and incest, it is not difficult to think of the affect storms and infant experiences and the resulting sadism created from the frustration and torment due to a lack of a containing person, to say nothing of an abusive one. And all of the various doctrines of original sin as developed by the church fathers, can be seen as infantile states of mind that linger in an untransformed state. Whether one deals with hunger, envy, lust, or a failure to differentiate one's own being from the spirit that flows through the ego, all doctrines of original sin, these doctrines could all be seen as results of early developmental traumas. Apparently, we need, however, a notion of transpersonal and archetypal evil Now perhaps this is because our own capacity for destruction can be so outrageous that we must project it onto some source outside our own historical lives. Is that why? Or perhaps there's such a force in the universe and within the discourse of people characterized by an overwhelming capacity to enact destruction of another soul. Does this force lurk within as an evil inclination, a drive against life and spirit, it appears that people secretly mix and merge with it through its fascination for power because it so readily leads, leads to power and, it, and has an uncanny intelligence. But then again, all this may be a displacement of the vicissitudes of early infancy, and one can argue for either position. There's no doubt that our, our developmental traumas can be overwhelming and live on with a force that can hardly be thought of as either personal or archetypal. Yet there are people who have experienced a dark side of the numinosum, whose souls have been seared by it, and for whom regarding such levels as anything but the dark side of God is a defense against what they really know. For example, a man recalled an early experience when he was five years old in which he was discovered playing doctor with a girl and scolded for it. Immediately after, upon walking home, he looked up at the sky (coughs) and he felt it open up. An overwhelming light was present, but then he felt attacked by it in a sharp and physically painful way. He felt it in his entire being, but especially his head and chest. Life for him was not the same after that. From being a playful, creative child, he became deeply withdrawn, narcissistic, and frightened. Much later in life, he recognized that he had known, at a very young age, the dark side of God, a Numenosum that was intensely linked with light and power. And we might recall that Jung's own self-images in childhood, such as the dream of the underground phallus, represented a dark and ambiguous aspect of the Numenosum. Jung kept this dream secret for much of his adult life until he was over 50, yet he never forgot it. Ultimately, one's position for an archetypal or purely human root of evil might depend upon one's personal experience, yet the phenomenon of a Hitler or a Stalin cannot be reduced to personal or even to collective factors. Now, one of Jung's most important standpoints was for both a human and a transpersonal source of evil, what he called the personal and archetypal shadow. And in this, he's in the tradition of systems of thought, such as the Kabbalah, Gnosticism, that insist upon a personal but also a transpersonal and substantial quality of evil. In other words, we're born into the world not as a tabula rasa, but also not just with a constitution. We're born into the world with a potential to feel and to experience and to act out a force that may be the derivative of centuries and centuries of experience. We don't know. But it goes way beyond the individual. That is Jung's point of view. One of Jung's most important analyses of the larger archetypal source of evil is found in a remarkable place in Mysterium Conjunctionis, and he hides it, half of it, in a footnote. I don't know why that is. Jung was very odd, you know, when there were things that he was afraid of getting attacked by, he often hid them in the mouth of an alchemist. Um, <laughs> And that's, uh, that's not cowardless, that's smart shadow integration. <laughs> and so half of this is found in a footnote in Mysterium Coniunctionis. But Jung talks about something that the alchemists call the wound. And the, it's a wound that comes from an act of original sin. And what is original sin in this alchemical doctrine? Original sin is a wound that stems from the castration of the great goddess. It is a wound that comes from the castration of the great goddess Kibeli, who was initially hermaphroditic and was castrated by male gods. It's a story that goes back to the transition from Neolithic to Bronze Age culture. And in this conception, because of Kibeli's castration, she is mad. She is in a state of madness. And furthermore, her consort and son lover Attis, is similarly in a state of madness. And the two of them live in an absolutely irresolvable fusion state. Addis can neither separate from Kibalee nor can he stay with her. When he tries to separate, like in one occasion when he goes off with a nymph, Kibalee kills the nymph. Addis, out of his mourning, kills himself. The sun lover, like Addis, castrates himself hangs himself, is killed by the dark side of the great goddess. They cannot separate and that is the wound. That is the primal wound traced back to this form of original sin well before the fantasies of the Church Fathers. This form of original sin in everybody's soul. A wound in which you can neither separate nor stay. A wound of unimaginable torment and the alchemists believed they had a cure. Optimistic eyes. They believed that by virtue of creating a state, they called the conjunctio, very important in Jung's work. By creating a state in which there was a union between two people, not a physical union, but a union in what they called a subtle body, a union in which one's body, physical body, was felt by the person but extended out in a sense to the other and formed a unified other, a, another third thing, they believe that when that happened, it was followed by a terrible darkness. You see, it was followed by what they called a negredo. But that darkness was what they called our negredo. It was sought after. You see, something that followed a Union state, and in that darkness, in that negredo, lurked the worst energies of nihilism, envy, hatred, and especially madness. And if one could live through that negredo and recognize that it was a result of a previous union state and carried with it all the terrors and traumas of incest abuse that previously happened in other kinds of negative conjunctios one had, if one can live through successive Nigredos, they believe that a substance would be created. They believe something called a balsam would exist. And this substance would indeed heal the wound of original sin the wound of unbearable symbiotic fusion in which you can neither stay nor leave. That's an example for Myung of the way evil functions in our being and comes from generations and generations and generations ago, and in this case, from the overthrow of the goddess. Now, I want to hasten to say That this is not to say that the problem of the archetypal, the bigness of that shadow is necessarily always harder to deal with than the personal shadow. There are people for whom dealing with the personal shadow is more difficult than the archetypal shadow. And we have to be very careful of hierarchies that make one harder necessarily than the other. Now let me talk about the shadow, personal and archetypal, just briefly. The personal shadow supposedly contains all those elements of our existence that have been repressed as we've grown up. All the feelings that we couldn't tolerate in order to become functioning egos in the world. The whole slew of feelings within us that were intolerable to our environment, intolerable to the superego that we have, intolerable to the conscience that was imposed on us. This is all pushed aside. This becomes the personal shadow. This becomes the dark personal side. Now, it's very central to Jung's thought that the shadow, while being a terribly difficult moral problem, also is purposeful, that when one can, so to speak, integrate it, it leads one on to more and more states of discovery. But in order to deal to, for that to happen, one first has to be able to feel it as an other, like a dark brother, a Cain and Abel like a dark brother. It has to be able to be felt like a dark sister. You have to be able to feel the shadow in this way of thinking, Jung's way of thinking, as having an inner otherness. And that's a difficult question, to be able to separate from that shadow and have it as an inner other. Now, one thing that you can kind of use this as a telltale thing about the personal shadow, it's on the same scale as the ego, the same size, more or less. So when the personal shadow issues come up and the patient or whoever it is says, I can't deal with this, it's really usually a secret I won't. The archetypal shadow is another story. It's not I won't. When it's the archetypal shadow, the I won't or I can't is an inflation. It's not that because the archetypal shadow was felt as overwhelming. I want to get back to that. Now, when one, so to speak, integrates the personal shadow, that means when you can carry with you. When you can walk in life with the awareness that you can envy another person and hurt them, that you can be narcissistic and only care about yourself and not really care about another person, when you realize that you have a power drive that can run roughshod over another person's best values and needs, when you begin to carry that you have this dark brother or sister within you, indeed, you do begin to gain an inner source of energy. You do begin to gain. You get stronger. And see, that's why in many fairy tales, you can never get the gold back from the other side unless you have the shadow with you. You're not strong enough. So the, ne- the necessity to integrate the shadow, to be able to have that shadow with you, is essential, is absolutely essential. But what about the archetypal shadow? What about that other fellow that shows up in our projections you know, as Hitler, you know, as Stalin, as Saddam Hussein, etc.? In psychology and alchemy Jung says something very, very important. He says that the personal shadow and the archetypal shadow are always intertwined. Always intertwined. And you must remember that. It's a great problem in Jungian psychology to begin separating those two too much. First the personal, then the archetypal. Always intertwined he says. But then what do you do with that? See, what happens with the archetypal shadow the way we know that clinically, the way you know that in your own being, is it leads to a fascination with darkness. All those shadow qualities that you, uh, that I've just recited to you, for example, all those various shadow qualities, you may know them, but can you stop acting them out? You may know about them from here to doomsday. They may be interpreted to you from here to doomsday. What is it that helps you stop acting them out? In the fusion with the numinosum of the archetypal shadow, that's what stops acting out. If you can somehow resolve that fusion, how, how? Jung says it's a natural state that, he, that exists, this fusion between this archetypal larger thing and the personal. And you know what he says? He says it's only a problem for pathological individuals. That's me. See? might be a few of you too. See, he says that when, you, when you're going to deal with the archetypal realm, the way you deal with it is through amplification. Because you tell mythological stories about these archetypes that come up and in that you're able to soothe the overwhelming anxieties and contain things and the personal shadow will separate. To me it doesn't work that way. I don't think it's ever worked that way. <coughs> I think what that does is help the ego split. But it doesn't help the cardinal problem of acting out. What is the problem? The problem is not primarily the moral issue of the shadow. The problem is madness. The problem is having to come up against those areas in our being in which we are truly overwhelmed. I believe that nobody deals with this fundamental intertwining of the archetypal and personal shadow, and make no doubt about it, they are intertwined. What's the statistics on incest? What's the statistics on child abuse? Boys and girls alike, they are incredible. That's an intertwining of personal and archetypal shadow. Those are mad acts, acts of madness, of soul murder, that the nicest guy or woman in the world would seem to be before you talking about it, and you can't imagine how it happened. But it happens because there's a fascination and it isn't controlled. How is it going to be controlled? In my experience, the main problem, once again, is about recognizing that states of madness exist. Now, in Jung's work, I believe one of the problems we have to face is his attitude towards madness. You might remember, as he tells you in uh, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Jung's entire life work was discovered through states of madness. After his break from Freud, he went through four years of descent into the unconscious in which he experienced psychotic states of mind. When he returned from that place, he brought with him, he was fortunate enough, he brought with him what he called his prima materia, the work for a lifetime. And then what he said was this. He said, only somebody with, whatever this means, a strong moral character should go there. Others should not. And in fact, he slammed the door because he really laid it out that Jungians were there to develop his prima materia. This is a problem, and it has to be faced as a problem. This man is extraordinary. What he's brought us is extraordinary. We must not idealize him. There was a shadow. If we follow his approach towards madness, we will never analyze it. We will never gather it up in the room when we're with somebody. You know why? Because it's the easiest thing in the world to avoid. When someone's mad parts enters the room with me, and I would say this, you can all, any of you are therapists, can think about this or think about it with anybody you're with or, anybody or ask anybody's experience of you. When a person's mad parts enter, what happens is your attention begins to fragment. For a moment, things get a little shaky. Your mind wanders. You go a little blank. You might feel negative feelings. But the tendency is to do nothing and wait till it passes. The tendency is just to wait till it passes, because it'll pass usually. Because the person you're with is not a florid psychotic. You see? But ask yourself how often you've allowed that to happen, how often you've allowed the slight dissociations, the slight blankness, the slight feelings of emptiness, the slight feelings of inner deadness, the slight feelings of hate to pass. You see, how often you've let that happen. And if you've done that, and also ask yourself how often you found yourself when the person is in that state talking about his or her positive qualities how you found yourself shoring up their strength, you see, because it's been too terrifying to just sit and look into a madness that in fact if you look into carefully enough and fully enough and see, you can often see right in it a very demonic force, a very outrageously demonic force, a force that from its eyes you are not you, there is a total reality distortion Now, when somebody begins to come up against that in their own nature, when you begin to feel the power of that force, that madness which lurks on the outer edges of anything we've integrated in our existence, when you begin to feel that power, you come up against something that humiliates you, that crushes you, you see. But it's the only thing that crushes the power drive in the archetypal shadow. It's only when we humbly feel that we are limited by these levels of our own madness out of which we can commit the worst acts without knowing it, only when we stay somehow close to it, that we also stay in a place where we are not gripped by the fascination of evil because we know, in that place, we know the damage we can do to another soul. You know who knew about that best? The Greeks. That was the myth of Dionysus. There were two, Dionysus, four, two forms of Dionysus. When the god came into a territory, and he is the god who comes when he is not called. He comes on his own. He has no ready-made sanctuaries. Next to Apollo, he's the most itinerant of all the gods but he has no sanctuaries, he comes. And when he comes, one must sacrifice to him. And those that do not sacrifice, that do not pay homage to him, immediately are stricken with madness and go through terrible acts of defilement, such as child murder. But those who know their madness and follow Dionysus in his ritual are cleansed. There's a purification. The two forms, it's the same thing in a human being. The form of our madness, when we know it, it has a strange cleansing and limiting function. If we don't know it, if we think it's something we can overcome, integrate, we're lost. We never integrate madness. In fact, integration, the only kind of integration we have is by becoming aware that it can never be integrated. We respect it. We see it. And we know that within, strangely, those powers of madness also lies renewal. It's all very much a strange mystery. But all this can be missed if we will not allow ourselves to gather up the madness in the room right within us or our own madness. Now, why does it form? Why? Where does this madness in a personal sense come from? This blankness, this fragmentation, this awful kind of dissolution of consciousness these deep feelings of hate, these flights from reality, these distortions of reality. Where does it come from in a personal sense? Yes, it has an archetypal leg such as in a Dionysus myth. Yes, it's part of the primeval waters of creation, but we also always have to work both sides of the street. Where personally? Try this, if you will. Many, many people have gone through the following kind of experience. They've gone through the experience where They have had a very poor experience of bonding with another person, say the child and the mother. They've had a very, very poor bonding experience in the sense that they've never known another who they can rest up against safely and have their toxins taken out, have their deepest anxieties taken away. They haven't known it. They've been deprived of it. It's a privation, even deeper than a deprivation. It's a privation. They haven't known it. And what happens then? If you haven't had that experience, what happens to you? What do you do? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you one thing that happens. One thing that happens is another structure forms inside of you, and it's a very deep-seated masochism. And it's a kind of masochism in which anything that is wrong in the environment, wrong in any sense, by someone else's views, by any accidents that happen, by any feelings that, quote, don't fit, anything that's wrong, you suck up. It's like you gain a black sponge inside yourself. And this black sponge literally sucks up everything that's wrong and it becomes a caricature of bonding, because now you bond in this deepest masochistic way. And it's not, it's not a scapegoat, you see. The scapegoat is more advanced. The scapegoat wants to do something about it. It's deeper. It's a totally masochistic passive place in which you just take it in. You're there to take it in. And you form a very dark inner core of masochism. And furthermore, you form a very, very dark, split-off sadism, a very, very deep core of anger that goes with it. And within that core of masochism, there is massive distrust, tremendous paranoia, the belief that nobody will ever be there for me, that I can count on nobody. Those kind of structures form, and something worse happens. Because in, those, in that black sponge, as I'm talking about it, there exists shards of pain. All the pain that's been sucked in from the environment, the pain the child feels from the lies of the people around him or her, the pain of his or her own feelings that have never been able to be detoxified. And the thing about that pain, it's so bad that you can't call it physical or psychic. Anyone who touches that level knows it's neither physical nor psychic. It's beyond those categories. That kind of pain lives in us. And the response to that pain are psychotic defense mechanisms. So another way in which we have to deal with the madness within us is to approach it not only from a so-called purposeful archetypal level, wherein the Dionysus myth might help us, or we could see it as bounding the limits of what we know, but we also must approach it in terms of daring to touch the worst level of pain within us. If you don't know that pain, you can't help anybody through it, you see, because it's only, you have to feel it yourself, because otherwise your voice tone won't carry the right vibration for a person to dare to open to it. Words don't help, you see. You have to, it all has to go through you. But it's that kind of level out of which some of the worst kind of evil and abuse functions. So let me wrap up a little bit. I don't want to keep you longer, too long, because time. It's better to go to some questions. But I'll just end with this nice thought. Many people live with a sense of being fake, of not really having the qualities that others see in them or which their accomplishments would seem to reflect. They live with a basic bottom feeling of being fake. Usually such feelings are well-founded.
3: For there is a core
2: of madness in everyone, a core that is formed in part to protect from unbearable pain, and a core that is also archetypal, part of humankind's inheritance. This core is, among other things, a core of lies, especially the lie that one's life is authentic. But when one's madness is felt, and defenses against it are felt, and the pain is felt, a strange kind of cleansing can occur. The shadow is both personal and archetypal. One does not deal well with the archetypal part and its compulsion and fascination through amplifications. This instead requires that both people engage in an interactive field where both analyst and patient have to look at whether they're the same, not where they're different. This would have to uncover, for example, in me, the phony robber in the man's dream I talked about. Working within the transference-countertransference field is very easy to deny, but it's also greatly aided by a mythological perspective. The latter opens our eyes to an age-old wisdom about evil, to the mystery and purpose, and to a faith that's so easily lost. Thus, we need a mythology of the shadow. We need a mythology of the shadow. But we also need to know how such knowledge can all too easily be used to detract from the arduous process of working with madness ours and the patients, within the analytic space. There is also a shadow side, consequently, to the use of myth. More than any other modern psychologist, C.G. Jung has opened our eyes to the reality and importance of the shadow. If my comments are at all critical, they are only so within a field of gratitude for his courage and incredible spirit. No one in modern times, to my mind, has shown a greater light upon evil. Thank you very much.
1: wanted to go right into questions Peter? Yeah I think that would make the most sense. Okay. Anyone have a question or a comment? I'm interested in your uh, thoughts about the uh, Senate hearings tomorrow in Washington uh, with regard to a personal and archetypal uh, shadow.
2: Well it, it's a it's, it, th- there's a good example you know one of the collective shadow um, of the masculine collective shadow um, men still don't get it. You see? I mean, and it, it's true. So it's a, perfect, it's a perfect example of a collective shadow. Every man is brought up feeling he's better than a woman. There's no man alive who doesn't feel in his bones somewhere that he is better than a woman and that she can be used for his purposes. Every one of us has been fed that, you know, like pablum. And, um, and it's a terrible thing to come to terms with. You know, you have to shake your head sometimes to realize it's not true. But that's an example of a collective shadow.
1: Anyone else? It's
3: a little difficult for
2: me to formulate. Um, my, my eldest son is mentally ill and out in the, in the uh, mental hospital. And I, your talk, among many other things, have in recent months suggested to me that I need to go visit him.
4: And. Um, and I'm afraid of something. In, in some sense, I'm asking for some kind of like uh, some kind of armor or some kind of uh, way to be with him. I think I have a great deal to learn from
2: his madness, and I certainly see a lot of my own madness magnified.
4: Um, is there anything you can say that <laughs> might help me with that?
2: I would guess that, for me, the most important thing would be to let him be a mystery. You know, if he is in a mental hospital, he's usually going to be amidst a lot of people who are diagnosing him, who are fitting him into one category or another, and who have no real concern for any kind of mystery or soul he might have. And I would would imagine that the the degree that you could get out of the way of your own ego and dare to feel your own uh, madness, if you will, that you might find him. Never from power, but only from weakness. And if you're you're afraid and you are going to shudder, that could be the best gift you give him. I mean, the worst thing you could do is need to be in control. That's the worst thing. Because he's around a lot of people who believe they have to be in control and that doesn't help them. Most people get out of mental hospitals by learning how to play the game. They don't heal.
1: Anyone else?
3: Nathan, Nathan, at times I wasn't quite sure how, how deliberately you were using madness and evil almost interchangeably.
2: What I'm saying is that madness is a field that overwhelms us, and evil, evil acts lurk within it. I'm considering madness as a field of um, of energies, of activities that affect us, that overwhelm us, and I'm saying that acts of evil will often originate from that field, and the field has the effect of totally denying the act of ma- the act of evil, rationalizing it taking the worst kind of abuse and fancying it up into some service of soul. I'm not identifying madness with evil, but I think they they are very close together. And I'm saying that it is in fact in the experience of madness that we get cleansed of our evil. Which is different from the acting of madness but the strange thing about that cleansing as the Greeks knew is it only comes to those who know that they've defiled or polluted the soul, one's own or another's. And with that horrible knowledge, the very fields of madness become cleansing, can become cleansing. Can you speak up? I've had the experience of what seemed to be a state of union at the time, later become what I wasn't sure whether it was acting out or evil on my part or not, and I've never been able to answer that question. Um, And the person in question consciously
3: is fine with it, but I'm not. Have you...
2: Say that again. Say that again.
3: Uh, In a clinical situation, experiencing what seemed to be a state of union between
2: myself and the client, but um, some things got acted out in that I didn't feel in control of it, It was very powerful, and later on, even though the client said she was fine with it and seems fine with it, I'm still... Have you experienced that, where it feels like a union or a conjunctio experience, and then later you're not sure? You see, uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, these are very, very, very difficult issues. Um, You you know, the kind of states of union... um, you know, when they are acted out, I don't know exactly what that might mean to you, but if it means anything but feeling them as a psychic states in an interactive field, that's usually disastrous. See, when those states come up, they're going to bring with them every residue of soul abuse to the soul from earliest infancy. And that's why after they occur, they often lead to tremendous darkness. It's, it's natural to the state of union, but it's a very dangerous state. It has to be deeply, deeply respected. If you, know, if you don't know your own madness, getting into states of union is extremely dangerous.
3: I think that's an axiom. Nathan, one comment, um, and then I'd like to share a dream with you that I think would, might be valuable in this uh, context. And that is, uh, isn't it true though that often experiences of, of madness uh, occur at a time when one is at a creative height? Uh, that there is a cutting edge of, uh, of creat- creativity in the uh, uh, in that uh, mad uh, experience uh, that often occur, for example, in dreams. If one can contain uh, that madness, it's that, one, that
2: w- madness is a terrible shadow side of creativity. Yes. Great amount of madness in the uh, children of creative people. Yes. yes. Um,
3: madness is a terrible shadow of creativity. Right. Okay, here's a dream, and uh, maybe you, you might comment on it. I think it's a very valuable one in this uh, context. Uh, it's an extraordinary dream because uh, it it brings into Psyche one of the uh, great uh, moments in our Judeo-Christian history. Uh, and uh, this is it. Uh, a woman who's about 44 years old, uh, deeply wounded uh, in uh, in childhood, uh, uh, totally misunderstood uh, uh, because of her deep introversion and, and feeling orientation and a very tough uh, Uh, family set up. She has a dream in which she is captured by this very, very powerful man and brought to, as the metaphor of the dream says, to his secret place. And he says to her, you will uh, be free. You can leave this place if you recite correctly the first commandment of the Decalogue. And uh, she uh, hesitates and then says, first, Honor thy father and thy mother, and uh, the response is crucial here. Uh, he shouts out a "no that, as she characterizes it, resounds through the uh, the planets and the stars, and this is the way the the dream ends
2: well it 's a uh, quite a obviously impressive dream, John. Um, you know, you, th- that's what you find, of course, through all um, uh, religious thought, the um, whole notion of the fear of God as the absolute you know, essential thing to deal with evil. And clearly, um, this is somebody who is up against a very, very dark power unless she sees where, what she truly is going to align with. And she's a blessed soul because she has such a dream. But she's somebody who is in the midst of, obviously, who has to make a choice. And whoever would need a dream like that is another story. But that's a powerful dream to get. And she has a very, very dark history. And certainly needs to make a choice for her soul.
5: Uh, I was triggered by the word that you used, danger you know, in the analytic or the uh, therapeutic situation. And I, as a therapist, have been there. um, But a place where I have felt and heard the word used very, very much in terms of safety is um, a 12-step group. Um, I, myself, am a survivor of incest. And that word is used in those meetings. And the other word that comes to mind is restored to sanity. (laughs) And <laughs> literally, the focus in on such meeting. I think, for people who are possessed one way or another um, by either the, inno- the focus on innocence of themselves or, or of others or, or the horrible um, evil in the world. Um, in that situation, they're able to, we're able to balance that, somehow slice through that and share. My question involves Jung and Jung's uh, trepidation with the group because it's such a powerful uh, movement in, uh, in this country and all over the world, and I've experienced both in AA and in um, survivors of incest, great power and healing and ability to 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 experience the suffer, uh, suffering and some of those shards you're talking about. I just wondered where you see Jung's shadow in this issue of the group, and especially since he in some of his relationships with his uh, patients, it seems like there was acting out there, and that I'm wondering where that why he put so, such a great uh, focus on the one-to-one relationship rather than in, in downgrading the group.
2: I think that, um, you know, that a lot of that is, is a reaction to cultural forces. A lot of it is a reaction to dangers of collectivity as he saw them at the time, um, Nazi Germany, whatnot. Um, it also came at a time where there was a lot of ignorance about groups. And it also um, is a result of his own, obviously, personality in which he um, was not up to uh, really opening in that way in a group of people. Um, it's, it's something that we all are getting to know. Uh, it's also strange that, uh, that is to say, getting to know the power of groups. Um, it's strange with Jung in that regard, too, because he tends to think about the alchemists as solitaries. They weren't uh, very un- They generally worked in groups. Um the tremendous amount of group work has always gone on um and so there's sort of this mystique of the uh of the sacred secret introvert uh it's not- it's not so uh, Gurdjieff groups i mean people know that it's immensely hard to work alone, especially if one's dealing with any powers like that
4: yes um I have one comment um in your discussion it appeared to me that you equated evil with darkness. And the analogy you used with the sponge, it was a black sponge. In my reading of mythology, evil came in many colors. You know, yeah. Red, green, black. Yeah, it's uh, true. I'm a white man. Reading, and in reading African mythology, the evil one was always white or dressed in white. Now, it,
2: yeah, you're right. It's many colors. The question right. I have
4: is, why do you always, or I shouldn't say you, I shouldn't, shouldn't be an attacking statement, but why is evil always equated with darkness?
2: Well, maybe it's because that's where most evil things get done, is in the dark. It, it's the, the, fo- the point is that the darkness is usually meant as a lack of consciousness, as a lack of light. And so that's the metaphor of dark. The dark is always thought about in that metaphor not as, um, not as a um, um, color of the evil one, but rather as the lack of consciousness through which these acts occur. That's why the metaphor of darkness is so prevalent. When we go to sleep as kids in the dark, we get most frightened. In sleep, most of our demons come up. So darkness is, is more than a cultural metaphor in that regard. But you're right, it can be any color. I mean, you know, in, in the goddess religion, white, the color of death is white, uh, not black. Things change culturally. Things change back and forth. I would, you know, understand you're taking, a, you know, a stance against that about talking about darkness and, you know, as, as evil, obviously, you know, for, your, for obvious reasons, and you're right. But it's not about that a dark person is evil, but the dark is a metaphor for the lack of consciousness. That's why that darkness is used.
4: Isn't it that specific as far as being a dark person as being evil? But back to the basic issue of the evil is being equated with darkness.
2: Well, yes, yes, it's true. It usually is. It usually is. When I commit evil acts, um, aren't I pretty unconscious? If I think I'm conscious, aren't I pretty dark in darkness in that respect, why I think I'm in
4: light? That sounds more like ignorance as opposed to darkness.
2: Well, you're you're right. You could say ignorance. We could take the darkness out and use ignorance too. You're right. It would be a different metaphor. Why do you reject the notion of darkness so much?
4: I find it very offensive. Why? Personally. Why? I find darkness is always... I'm dark. I find darkness is equated with evil. I read African folk tales. African folk tales do not, you know, equate yeah. whiteness with evil. But hold me. Let's listen to me. And in medieval mythology and folk tales, the evil one came in many colors. There were green, red.
2: Mm-hmm. This is true.
4: That's right. This is true. And that's why. And that's, my only question is why, you know, do you continue to use uh, blackness, darkness,
2: as evil? It's a good question. I'll think about it. I'm glad you raised it
5: um, what you mentioned here that we need a mythology uh of the shadow, and uh, I was sitting here trying to think of uh, you know back to mythology that has one that we have already, and um, I can't seem to come up with one this evening, but I wondered if you could if i would what uh, relate what um a myth a mythology of the shadow some a myth that we you know already. oh
2: well yeah i mean there's there's many um. Yeah for For example, um, one that Jung is fond of is the um, is a Zoroastrian myth um, in which um, the powers of good and evil come into the world, and the power of evil is associated with the lie, the form of d- the force of disorder, the force of chaos, the one who attacks and kills the power of the good, a Riemann attacking the power of the good ormazd. What the myth says is that evil. The power of a Riman, the myth says, is necessary in order that the good actualize in the world. That is to say, unless one feels one's shadow, I almost said darkness, unless one feels one's shadow and carries it, the good does not incarnate. That's one example of a myth. Another example of a myth is the story of Cain and Abel how that's been taken up. The Kabbalists have taken hold of that myth and have said that the race of Cain essentially are what in modern dsm three diagnosis are present-day borderline personalities. There's all different ways people have dealt with, with evil. I've mentioned the Kabbalistic story that says, the Kabbalistic myth says that, the, um, that there is a harshness and judgment in the Godhead and that harshness, harshness and judgment is a sephiroth called Geburah. And it says that that sephirth of judgment is absolutely necessary to the working of the totality of the the whole unity of the Godhead. When it is split from its opposites, whether that be chesed, the Sephiroth of mercy, or split from binna, divine understanding, it's in that splitting that evil comes into the world. So there are many myths that talk to us about how evil arises and what to do about it. Gilgamesh and Enkidu would, and Enkidu would be another example. Enkidu, in that, in that sense, is the shadow side of Gilgamesh in the sense of an earlier creation, someone closer to the goddess religion before. And that's something he then has to get in touch with.
5: I think we'll
1: do one more question.
5: Um, I'd like to go back to... A- statement you made to an earlier question about the creative parent usually has the uh, child who is psychotic or um, has the evil. Uh, is this if a creative parent does not use his creativity in a positive way?
2: What I'm, first of all, I didn't make that as a dominant statement. I said it seems that there's, re- there's even statistical reasons to believe that the children of creative people suffer more. And it was an answer to the remark about creativity being close to darkness, close to evil. What it means is that when the person's creativity is so ensconced in a power drive, that it's more important than relatedness. Martin Buber said that whenever a moment of I and thou is missed, evil is created. Whenever an I-thou connection is missed, evil is created. It's rather when the see when creativity can be such a demon that it overrides the I Thou, and then there's a tremendous amount of devastation.
5: Um, the devastated recipient, in many times, incest victims are very creative people. Uh, what's the process that creates that? You say
2: incest vi- incest victims or perpetrators? Are you saying are creative people? The victim. The victim is a very creative... You know, these are such complicated questions. The incest victim has touched the divine sphere, has, 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 been in, has had the sacred act enforced on him or her, the, the act that's only allowed to the gods, the act of incest. So, on the, so because, of, because of that, the incest victim is in a strange way prone to the mystery of union, and at the same time, there's a fa- the fabric of the soul has been rent. Asunder, and there's like a tear in the subtle body, with the result that there's an opening to archetypal forces that are not that open to the person who is not the incest victim. So there's an opening to the creative often too from that
1: horrible act. Thank you. I think we'll stop there. Thank you, Nathan. See you tomorrow.
0: This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio this podcast or to find a Jungian analyst near you visit our website www.jungchicago.org thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above Barbara Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie Cabe, Brian, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Koroluski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org slash